welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I am your host, Georgia Ray. Today, it is my pleasure to be speaking with the winner of the Environmental Law Institute's 2022 Environmental Achievement Award, Benjamin F. Wilson. He is an environmental lawyer and civil rights advocate who has worked tirelessly to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion within the legal field. Hailing from Jackson, Mississippi, Ben served in the Civil Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, moved to private practice, and went on to become chairman of Beverage and Diamond, the largest and oldest environmental firm in the United States. Ben helped establish the African American General Counsel and Managing Partner Network and founded the Diverse Lawyers Network. He also teaches environmental law at Howard University School of Law, where he co-founded the Howard Energy and Environmental Law Society. He retired from his position as chairman at Beverage and Diamond and the practice of law in December 2021. But he continues managing the Diverse Lawyers Network, teaching at Howard Law School, and serving as board chair for ELI and as a member of many other boards. Of Ben, ELI President Jordan Diamond said, Quote, Ben is a remarkable environmental lawyer whose impact reverberates so far beyond his immediate circle. An astounding number of people call him a mentor, and his lasting impacts are felt not only in the legal profession, but across diverse communities nationwide. He spent a career championing the interplay of environmental and civil rights, and we are all better for it. Unquote. A lifelong leader on environmental legal issues, pro bono initiatives, and furthering diversity in the field, ELIs is one in a long line of awards conferred on Ben. Among others, he has been honored with the American Lawyers Lifetime Achievement Award, was named as one of Lawyers of Color's most influential Black lawyers of the decade, and received the National Bar Association's Presidential Award. Ben was also recently inducted into the Washington Bar Association's Hall of Fame. We will be celebrating Ben's most recent accomplishment at the ELI Award Dinner on October 25th, 2022. Ben, it is truly an honor to be speaking with you today. Let's start at the beginning. You decided to devote your life to pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion aims in the environmental legal community long before those were the buzzwords they are today. What drew you to this line of work and how have you seen the environmental field change over the years? The fact of the matter is What drew me to environmental law initially was just opportunity. And I was learning, looking rather, for a meaningful opportunity to demonstrate my litigation skills and to grow. And environmental law was very much an emerging field at the time I began practicing law, at least in the first few years of my career. As time passed, I saw environmental law differently then I see other practice areas. In environmental law, we're actually, in my view, trying to solve a problem. We're not simply trying to best our opponent on the other side of the table. But we are hoping that when we complete our work, that we've made the water cleaner, made the air cleaner, resolved an ongoing issue for a community. And, uh, and that's extremely important to me. 
Yeah, and when you speak about problems, one that really comes to mind for me is the water crisis going on in Jackson, Mississippi right now. I know you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and for listeners that may not know, there has been a recent crisis there where more than 150,000 mostly Black residents were left without access to safe drinking water during the summer months of 2022. This affected people's ability to bathe, flush toilets, and of course, remain hydrated. The issue has still not been resolved. As an environmental lawyer and a son of the city, how have you viewed this crisis? Well, I consider it an urgent crisis, uh, Georgia. I've had uh, the opportunity to work with other cities across the country who face similar issues. But Jackson's is particularly egregious. What we have here is failure to invest in the wastewater treatment plant and their collection system for a couple generations now. And there have been numerous boil water notices. It was the recent flooding of the Pearl River that brought this to national attention. But I believe that uh, uh, people have been aware of this problem for quite a while. I was just watching some of the recent reports from yesterday. The EPA administrator was in Jackson meeting with the mayor and will be meeting with the state. But uh, he has indicated that the Department of Justice and EPA are seeking to work out a consent decree pursuant to which the city will be obligated to meet certain specific uh, deadlines and obligations to, A, bring their plant and collection system uh, back into uh, order, And this is a lawsuit under something called the Safe Drinking Water Act. And I think it's extremely important. Uh, The one thing we've all learned, and Hurricane Katrina taught us, and that is that none of us can live without water. We can live without food for a long time, but we cannot live without clean, potable water. Suffice it to say, this is a real urgent need, and I believe the administrator's presence And Jackson reflects uh, his recognition of the importance of addressing that issue now and to uh, ensure that the citizens of Jackson have clean water to drink. Yes, of course, that is a, a very important aim. And I hope any family and friends you may still have in the city remain safe and hydrated Can you talk a little more about how being from Jackson has influenced your life and your career trajectory? Certainly. So, Georgia, uh, my family, my parents moved to Jackson when I was six weeks old. My father had just earned his master's degree at Indiana University, and I had been uh, born on the campus of that university. And as they would tell me the story, I was in a basket at my mother's feet there automobile packed to the gills. And the Magnolia State, as Mississippi is known as, was really a, uh, a state of two, uh, two different people, black and white, very much a segregated society. And then by the time the Brown versus Board of Education decision was made, which required the integration of public schools, Mississippi became an even more repressive uh, place to live. And not just Mississippi, but throughout the South, they had what they call white citizens councils and state sovereignty commissions developed. And the goal was to stop altogether 
and at a minimum retard the efforts to bring integration into the Deep South. Um, I was not aware of all of these things as I was growing up, of course, but when I was not yet four, there was a fellow by the name of George Washington Lee in Humphreys County, Mississippi, that's in the Delta. He was a black man. He wanted to vote. He registered and he encouraged other blacks to vote, and he was killed. Uh, two months after my fourth birthday, Emmett Till uh, was uh, murdered in Sunflower County, Mississippi. He was all of 14 years old. His crime, his offense, was uh, allegedly whistling at a white woman. Just after my eight, eighth birthday in Pearl River County, Mississippi, that's down on the Gulf Coast, a black man was forcibly taken from a jail and lynched. And there was no Atticus Finch there to defend him from a mob. Uh, when I was not yet 12, 250 miles to our east in Birmingham, Bull Connor, the infamous uh, sheriff there, turned uh, fire hoses and German shepherds on young people demonstrating for their rights in a park there in Birmingham. That summer, two weeks before my 12th birthday, Medgar Evers uh, was murdered. Coming home late from a civil rights rally, he led the NAACP. He was the field secretary in Mississippi. His, his assassin was not brought to justice for another 31 years. That fall, four girls between age 11 and 14 were killed when their church was bombed in Birmingham. And the following summer of my 13th birthday, James Cheney of Meridian uh, Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner of New York were found buried uh, ignominiously in a, an earthen dam in Neshoba County, Mississippi. This was part of what they called Freedom Summer. So please know that in my formative years, particularly as I approached my teens, I was very much aware of uh, these current events and the changes that were taking place. And you've not asked me but I will volunteer that I was drawn to the law in part by a number of lawyers who chose to address these civil rights issues. And these were not people from New York as a general matter or from the Department of Justice in Washington. They were lawyers who were from the Deep South. There was, if I could call their names briefly, there was Wiley Branton in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he represented the nine children who integrated Central High School in 1958. For the South in New Orleans, there was a fellow by the name of A.P. Turo. He was a graduate of Howard University, both undergrad and law school. And he represented a little girl, Dorothy Bridges, who integrated the schools in New Orleans. And you're probably familiar, Georgia, with that famous Norman Rockwell painting of a little black girl in a pristine white dress, books and ruler in hand, and a racial epithet scrawled on the wall, an errant tomato on the ground, escorted to school by four headless U.S. Marshals. And to the east of us in Montgomery, there was a lawyer by the name of Fred Gray. He, he represented uh, the young woman who integrated the University of Alabama, Vivian Malone Jones. And he also, at age 24, represented a young 25-year-old minister by the name of Martin Luther King, Jr. 
even further east in Atlanta, there was Donald Hollowell. And Donald Hollowell was a graduate of Lane College. And Don, Donald was responsible for bringing the lawsuit, I should say Mr. Hollowell actually, was responsible for bringing the lawsuit that integrated the University of Georgia. Those students were Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter, who later became a noted journalist. They were escorted to the registrar's office that day by a tall, dark, handsome fellow, Vernon Jordan. And, uh, and then further north, my family lived in Nashville for a period of time. There was Z. Alexander Luby, another Howard grad who represented the college students who sat in at lunch counters in 105 cities across the country and the Freedom Riders who got on buses to challenge those issues and uh, to challenge segregation. And among his clients was Mr. Good Trouble himself, John Lewis. And lest you think I'm forgetting the women, there is also Constance Baker Motley. And most of us know her as a federal judge, but I recall that she represented James Meredith in uh, 1962. I was in the sixth grade. He was integrating the University of Mississippi, and his then wife was my student teacher. And George, I thought she must be a physical giant. She wasn't. I was a little disappointed when I met her, but I learned an invaluable lesson, and that is that one did not have to be a man to be brave, and one did not have to be physically imposing to have courage. And she certainly had all of that and then some. So these people were among those as lawyers who challenged that segregated system as it existed and who were largely responsible for bringing about the change that uh, provided me so many opportunities. I'm genuinely taken aback by how much your life has touched history and how many inspiring and remarkable people you have come to know and, you know, the heartbreak that's led you to where you are. So it's very inspiring to hear that from you. And I'd love to ask how it influenced your career in the law. You know, how did you incorporate these people that you met and the experiences that you had into how you practiced? Well, that's a great question, and it was a challenge. The truth of the matter is by the time I went to law school, the many of the great battles of the civil rights movement had been fought, and I decided to go into a law firm practice, And uh, but I was always concerned with issues of civil rights. Fortunately for me, I got to see the connection that occurs sometimes between environmental law and civil rights. We see it most notably in the area of climate change and climate justice and environmental justice. And so uh, fortunately for me, I've had a chance to marry those common interests, uh, teaching at the Howard Law School with others, and also addressing environmental justice issues on behalf of my clients. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, and it leads nicely into another question I was planning to ask, which is that in the Environmental Forum, you stated, quote, environmental justice is the civil rights of the 21st century. That's our mantra at Howard, end quote. And if you want to talk a little bit right now about your work at Howard, we'll get into that later as well. But 
What are some promising ways you see attorneys, law firms, and government agencies engaging with this, these environmental justice aims? Well, environmental justice has been around formally for a long time. From my perspective, what was critical is I had a friend whose name is Nicholas Targ, and he's at the Holland and Knight Law Firm, and another friend, uh, Quentin Pear, who was a longtime attorney at the Department of Justice in Environmental Enforcement. And they reached out to me and they said, you know, Ben, we really need to have more students of color practicing in environmental law. And, uh, and obviously, they were both also very much concerned with environmental justice. And the then dean, uh, Kurt Schmoke, and I had been friends uh, from law school. And so uh, we approached him. And it was with him that we said that environmental justice would be the major civil rights issue of the 21st century. It appears that we were right, that this would, in fact, turn out to be the major civil rights issue of our of our century, of our time. And we've been teaching at the Howard Law School, I believe, for 17 years now. And I'm proud to say over the course of that time, uh, we have several hundred Howard Law graduates who now work uh, for the federal, state, and local governments on environmental issues. They also work for uh, nonprofit NGOs, and they also work in the private sector with companies and with law firms. And uh, so I'm extremely proud of uh, that. Our students at Howard, they have uh, uh, certainly given as much to me as I may have given to them. And you certainly have spent that 17 years educating the future of the environmental legal profession. So one thing you said in a Routers interview last year is you highlighted how attorneys of color should not need to be perfect in order to succeed. Can you share more about what law firms, government agencies, all these places you said the students are going and working, what they can be doing to support young lawyers of color? Well, first of all, I hope they'll start with young people who are not even in law school. I hope that they will visit our elementary schools and our high schools. And so I hope people will go into schools, reach young people where they are, and share with them the possibility of what they could be and what they might be. And so that's what I think is, is, is critical. And Howard's a very important place, but it's, it's not the only place. I've spoken at a, probably about 15 law schools across the country, but there are many people who are teaching environmental law, of course, and environmental justice now. And I believe there is a, a commitment to this study of law, and more importantly, to the action that is required. And what we attempt to do at Howard, and all credit to my colleague, Quentin Pear, we have our students read articles about environmental justice issues that are in the news. Jackson, Mississippi would be an obvious one. And, and also to address environmental justice issues in their hometowns, where they happen to be from. And we find that it makes the issue personal, and it helps provide guidance to our young people. So we're very proud of them. In that same interview that I just referenced, where you talked about young attorneys of color, you also referenced the biblical story of David and Goliath, saying you felt a little bit like David making your way in the environmental space early on. Can you expand on this allegory and tell our listeners how you practice using your slingshot, as it were, before meeting Goliath? 
Well, it's interesting. David and Goliath is one of those stories that most of us believe we've read, but to be, if I will confess, and my mother would be very upset with me, it was only a couple of years ago that I actually read the biblical story of, of David. And my interpretation of that has been influenced by the book of the same name. Goliath was the original big man, eight feet tall, and uh, David, not so much. And there were three different types of soldiers. There was the infantryman, which is what Goliath was. There was the cavalryman, who might uh, be on a horse or a chariot. And then there was what, in that era, might be their air force, the people with the bows and arrows and the slingshots. And what's fascinating about uh, David is apparently Goliath was asking David to come unto him. And Gladwell postulates that maybe Goliath was suffering from this gigantism disease and had poor vision. But uh, David was anything but dumb. He was not going to find himself in close quarters with a much bigger and powerful man. He kept his distance. And the point here is each had an advantage in close quarters. The infantryman did. When speed was of the essence, the person on the horse or in the chariot had an advantage. And where distance was helpful, the person with the slingshot or the arrow had the advantage. The other thing I learned when I read the scripture was this was not the first time David had used his slingshot. He was, a, after all, a shepherd, and he had used it to kill bears and lions and to protect his flock. And so it occurred to me that oftentimes one has these warm-up battles, if you will, that prepare you for something far greater. And so my view is that the real lesson of uh, David and Goliath is what appears to be a disadvantage. Uh, David's size may be an advantage if he maintains that distance, and, which he did. And I also think what's critical here is that individuals make a difference in individuals acting on faith, and that which is right can make a huge difference. So the other point I, I, I make sometimes somewhat jokingly is at times I have represented Goliath, and, uh, and uh, Goliath is entitled to a fair trial. But what I've attempted to do in, in my representation is to help my clients always to solve a problem. What is the issue? What is our responsibility as it relates to the issue? And irrespective of what our legal responsibility is, what is it that we can wish and need to do to solve the specific environmental problem that is before us? And... Um, and quite frankly, um, when my clients are able to maintain uh, relationships with the communities that they serve, it matters. And because we know that we're going to see these communities and they are our neighbors, They're sometimes our family members, we're going to see them again. So it's, it's absolutely essential that we uh, work hard to build meaningful relationships. It doesn't mean we'll always agree. But hopefully we can find a common ground and more importantly, a common solution to a problem. And how are some of the ways that you've worked on maintaining that relationship with your community? 
when I'm working on a project for a client, I think it's critical that we make certain that we're meeting with communities and and we are understanding what their concerns are. So as an example, years ago, I uh, represented the city. We were building the arena downtown. And the arena, as you know, is located in historic area of Chinatown. What most people don't know is that in the 1930s, Chinatown is now where the Superior Courthouse is. And that community was moved to its current location to accommodate the courthouse. And so what was essential was that we meet with business people, that we meet with people who um, live and work there, and that we make certain that what we were doing did not do damage to the history and the culture of uh, those who have been there for a long period. We also had critical federal structures. You know, the National Portrait Gallery is there. The National Building Museum is there. That's the old pension building. That's when the old, the Union soldiers used to get their pension there up until the 1930s after the Civil War. Uh, and so this was critically important. We had historic preservation issues at that site, as you would expect, traffic issues, which relate to air. And so... All of these require working in collaboration with others to make certain that we mitigate the harms to the maximum extent possible and that we have buy-in from those who live, work, and, and will use that facility. So that is an example. I think that's a great example and definitely one that listeners here in D.C. will understand well. Now, if we can shift gears a little bit, I'd love to talk more about some of your work with the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, the Diverse Lawyers Network, and the African American General Counsel and Managing Partners Network. Let me start maybe with the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. So the original Washington Lawyers Committee was started in the mid-1960s by Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And it was in response to the absence of the rule of law, oftentimes, though not exclusively, in the Deep South. And members of the bar, and for example, in my state, generally were not speaking and acting to uphold the rule of law. And so Attorney General asked many leading lawyers in uh, the East to uh, take on those responsibilities. I was brought to the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs by its longtime executive director, Rod Boggs, terrific fellow. And the whole idea is that law firms working with very able counsel from the Washington Lawyers Committee will take on cases pro bono. And so we had housing cases, we had employment cases, we had all manner of cases in the field of, of uh, civil rights that were handled successfully. And I worked on some of those cases. Uh, many people at my firm, Beverage and Diamond, uh, did far greater work than I and deserve all that credit. And there were many other firms who did a great and do a great deal of work. I was also influenced to get involved by two friends, Tom Williamson and John Payton. And they were both remarkable people who I greatly admired. And they believed in the Lawyers Committee. And uh, they recruited me 
to get involved, and I've never regretted that. We started a group called the Diverse Partners Network. We now call it the Diverse Lawyers Network. And about 15 years ago, two friends approached me and said, Ben, we should organize some of the African-American attorneys in these major law firms, and we should meet and talk about issues of common interest. And I explained, I tried that a couple times, but it failed. And they looked at me with great disbelief, and I said, well, I would host a first meeting or a second meeting, but I couldn't get anyone to host a third. And my wife says, it's not potluck if you're doing all the cooking. But uh, these two men reminded me of my mother in the sense they were trying to get me to do the right thing. Uh, and so they haunted me. And so I called together a group of 15 partners that I knew. And I said, if we do this, will you host the second meeting? Will you host the third? And, and so on. And they agreed. And I said, if we do this, this will not be like the church where the women do all the work and the men do all the talking. We will take turns leading and we will share responsibility. And they agreed. And that was about 15 years ago. We've enjoyed enormous success. I'm particularly proud of a newsletter that we send out each week that goes to almost 6,000 lawyers, most of whom are diverse, all across America and around the world. So if uh, someone wins a case or someone is uh, honored, we put their JPEG photo there and a link to a story so someone other than their mother will know about their success. And we also will list upcoming events. And finally, we have a listing of jobs and they're about 90 employers and several hundred jobs that are posted. Uh, we have a website where people can include their bio and personal information. So when someone's looking for a diverse securities lawyer or employment lawyer or antitrust lawyer, and they say, I can't find anyone, we can find them. Similarly, we started a group, uh, we call it the African American Managing Partners Network. And there, all credit goes to John Daniels, who's the longtime chair emeritus of Quarles and Brady, Scott Bolden, Tony Pierce, Shaman Proctor, Grace Spates, who were all here in D.C., and they were extremely helpful and led our effort. We, about that time, we started an African-American general counsel network, and I believe that network was helpful to my friends, April Miller Boys, who's the general counsel of Intel, and Ernest Tuckett. And they have led an initiative, uh, the GC 2025 initiative, where we're trying to have a, at least 100 um, black GCs in the Fortune 1000. And through the dent of their hard work, we've made great progress. So the point here, through our newsletter, through the meetings that we have, through our referral and mentoring, informal services that we provide. We wanted to help others within the profession, particularly diverse attorneys, succeed. And I'd like to believe we're having a positive impact. We started out, like David, without much. My then assistant, Maya Taylor, would uh, uh, type up my dictated highlights. And then later, a wonderful, another wonderful person at our firm, Laura Grimm, took over responsibility for preparing the newsletter each week. And uh, really all credit to Maya initially and 
now, Laura, for making that a great service to so many people. If we can move over to some of your other your other involvement as a board member for ELI and other notable organizations such as Northwestern Mutual Insurance Company, PG&E Corporation, a um, few others which I'd love for you to expand on. How do you integrate your past career as a lawyer and just in general kind of these new ESG principles into that work? Oh, now that's a hard question, <laughs> and I can go on forever. Let me first talk a little bit about some of the groups I've been involved with. For about 12 years, I was the chair of something called the Healthy Babies Project. The U.S. was 13th in the world in infant mortality, I think just ahead of South Africa. D.C. had one of the highest infant mortality rates. What affects a, a baby's uh, survival is the baby's birth weight over four pounds. They survive under four pounds, it's difficult. And back then when we started, there was a crack epidemic and we had sometimes mothers abusing alcohol or drugs. And we had very brave women who would only go to places where the cops would go with guns drawn and they'd knock on the door. Man would come to the door and rudely ask, what do you want? And they would explain, they understood there was a pregnant woman living there, and they wanted her to have her prenatal care. And when the mother gets that prenatal care, she has this healthy baby. We've had, I think, over 6,000 live births in the District of Columbia. It's been a while since I've been involved with healthy babies, but I did work with others to help get it started. Uh, for a similar period of time, I think 12 years, I was the chair of the D.C. Board of Elections and Ethics. And again, I never did this alone. We had a great staff. And we had uh, other board members who were excellent, but we wanted to ensure the integrity of the election process. And I believe we did that. In several high-profile cases, we fined mayors. We even kicked one mayor off the candidate because of phony uh, because of phony signatures on a nominating petition. Um, I'm currently working on three nonprofit boards that mean a great deal to me. One is the D.C. Bar Foundation, and they provide funding to various groups that provide legal services to the poor, to the elderly, et cetera. And uh, it's a tremendous group. Uh, the District of Columbia government in recent years has uh, almost trebled the contribution they make from $11 million to over $30 million. And we also raise uh, about $700,000 from the bar itself. So I'm proud of that. I serve on the DC Judicial Nomination Commission, chaired by Judge Emmett Sullivan, ably chaired by Judge Emmett Sullivan. And we are the ones who make recommendations for nominees to go on our Superior Court and on our DC Court of Appeals. And last but certainly not least is the opportunity to be a part of ELI. We want to bring the rule of law to environmental issues all over the world. And again, another of my partners at Beverage and Diamond, Paul Hagen, encouraged our firm to get involved with ELI. What a, what a wise man he is. And several of my partners, John Cruden, Scott Fulton, served as presidents of ELI, the CEO, and proud of their contribution. And I'm extremely proud of our current leader, Jordan Diamond. She has been absolutely fantastic. And she's guided us through COVID 
and other transitions in this time period and done a remarkable job. And she'd be the first to praise our remarkable staff. And Jim McElfish is retiring after over 30 years. Jay Pendergrass has, I think, been with the uh, with ELI for a similar period of time. He's responsible for our programs. Both Jim and Jay have made remarkable contributions to ELI. And we've had others contributing despite significant health challenges and uh, significant personal loss. So I'm very, very proud of what they have done. Yeah, and you really have been at ELI through some critical moments of change. As you just mentioned, Jordan, our new president, who I absolutely echo, is wonderful. And, you know, renewed diversity and inclusion efforts in the organization. How have you seen the organization grow? And what are your hopes for ELI's future? Well, first of all, uh, we are taking a... we are becoming more involved with international issues. I know that uh, Jordan is out of the country this week for a conference, and that's something that uh, Scott Fulton started. He spent and spends a great deal of time in China on behalf of ELI and our initiatives. Obviously, we're paying even more attention to climate change, the issues of plastics, the issues of oceans. And so if there's a major environmental issue, believe me, ELI and its people are involved. But ELI also, like other environmental organizations, needed to show a different action with diversity. And we've used George Floyd to challenge ourselves. So our board, I believe at this point, is just about 50-50 men and women. We had not been there before. We do have significant diversity on our board. It doesn't mean we still don't have work to do. We do. And and diversity within our ranks, but we want to do even better. So all credit to our board. Um, Carlton Waterhouse and Vicki Patton are two of our board members who played a particularly strong role in helping us make progress on diversity over these last couple of years. And I'm uh, uh, very proud of of their leadership. If I might, I I wanted to briefly talk about some of my interests in diversity. I've invested uh, first as a shareholder in my law firm, then later as a managed partner and chair with a lot of organizations. There's the Minority Corporate Council Association. They've been around for a long time, their leader is a woman by the name of Jean Lee, but she's preceded by a who's who of people who were dedicated to diversity in the profession. Lloyd Johnson, Vita Richardson, Joe West. There's the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity. And what they have done is we have probably close to 10,000 uh, lawyers who are being encouraged and had their careers launched through the various diversity programs that the Leadership Council on Legal Diversity heads. There's the Corporate Council Women of Color program that's led by Lori Robinson. And I cannot imagine anyone who's done more to advance the careers of diverse women in America than Lori. And at the NBA, there was a woman by the name of Cora Walker, a woman who left school to support her family 
when her father was no longer there. And they, she put herself through school at St. John's University. But what I remember about Cora is she was always willing to invite others uh, and to advance the career of others. And she did that. And the National Bar Association has played a critical role in, in whatever success I may have enjoyed in my career. I appreciate your humility, and I think it's great how you have called out all of these people who have helped you get to where you are today, but definitely, you know, don't want to undersell your own activity in that because you are absolutely a very impressive person, and it's been an honor to hear from you today. I do have one final question before we wrap up, which is, as you look towards the future of the environmental field and environmental justice more specifically, what brings you hope? What organizations and people out there that you've mentioned today or you yet to mention should our listeners be paying attention to? Well, I'll tell you, there's one thing that brings me uh, more hope than anyone else. And quite frankly, Georgia, it's your generation. You see, the great issue, the great environmental issue of our day is climate change. The issue within the issue of climate change that is so challenging is climate justice, right? So we know about the fires in the West. We know about uh, the monsoon season in Asia. We know that uh, Europe has experienced record temperatures this past summer. And we know the impact that hurricanes have had in the Gulf. But we also know that all of these issues have a, while they have a devastating impact on anyone, those who are most vulnerable, the poor and people of color, have it toughest. And what gives me some hope is that people are seeing the connection between climate change, climate justice. They are seeing the civil rights issues, if you will, that are embedded within environmental law. And so that gives me hope. You've not had a chance to ask me, but one of the most rewarding experiences I had in the final years of my legal career was uh, serving as a deputy monitor on the Volkswagen diesel gate matter and as the monitor on the Duke Energy coal ash spill. And so what was helpful there is you start thinking about co corporate culture. How do you change a culture of a major company that has a huge impact. Duke is a powerful name in North Carolina. And Volkswagen is the largest company in, the Germ in Germany, the most powerful economic force in Europe, and uh, the third largest economy in the world. And in many countries where they do business, the most significant manufacturing operation. So when we can have a, a positive impact on how companies treat the environment. When people see compliance is not simply the issue of a person with a title as a vice president of corporate client compliance, but the obligation of everyone, as my friend and mentor Larry Thompson reminds me, we make a huge difference. Uh, there is one other person, though, I wish to close that I have not. Uh, well, there's two other things I wish to say. I want to thank my law firm. Um, Beverage and Diamond gave me an opportunity when there was not a long line of firms that were interested in me. And I hope I, in a small way, I have uh, uh, repaid the trust and confidence they have provided me. 
and uh, it's a small firm, but uh, I've loved the firm and I love the impact that we've had in the environmental field. But the most important person in my life has been my wife, Miranda. And as long as I can breathe, I, I wish to acknowledge her. You see, when I wanted to quit, she would say, not yet. When I failed, she would say, next time. And when it seemed like things might never work out, she would say, your day will come. And so I owe uh, so much to the belief she had in me. And uh, she was an outstanding trial lawyer in her own right. It's her belief. That belief was not as widespread as it may be today that has made a difference. So I want to thank her. And I want to thank you for this time today. A life passes very fast, but I'm very grateful to ELI, very grateful to our board and to our leader, and and perhaps most importantly to our staff who walk the walk every day to make our environment better for everyone wherever they may happen to live. So thank you so much. Ben, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Your intelligence, experience, love for family, and commitment to justice really shine through when you speak. And it was great to hear your reflections and advice. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.